We have a very special interview this week with Susie Gant Vierke. Susie's the daughter of original ranch owners Dallas and Edie Gant. She'll share insights into her parents' history and how the original ranch partnership was formed. She'll take us back to her early years growing up at the ranch and share some fascinating facts about the intricate details that made the ranch unique in design. It was an honor to sit down with Susie and listen to her stories about her family and this special place she called home. So let's start with a little bit of history about your parents. Where did Dallas grow up? He was born in 1913 in Altus, Oklahoma, and they were wheat farmers. And I believe that they were sharecroppers because he was one of six children and I knew that they were all born in different homes on different farms, which meant they must have been sharecroppers rather than people who owned a farm. And he went to high school there and was the only member of his family that got to go to college one year only. And that would have been 1930. So right during the Depression and the Dust Bowl. So not only were they in a depression, but they couldn't farm. Um, and he needed to make money. And I think he was told that he better move to a dry climate or just plan on not living very long. So he got a job in Texas for a while. And the most of his history that I know is that he made his way to Santa Fe, I think courtesy of Jack and Sophie Burden, who built Ramuda Ranch here. And they were managing the Bishop's Lodge in Santa Fe and hired him there, and he became manager. In 1941, he and my mother were married, and probably October, two months late, well, a month and a half later, Pearl Harbor was bombed, and he tried to enlist, but he, because of his asthma, he was refused. So that was the war connection. He would have gone, um, as many men would have, but it wasn't accepted. And then your mother's growing up? My mother was born and raised in Milwaukee, and in 1921 she was born, and had pneumonia a lot as a child, to the extent where they she almost died. And the doctors told her the same thing is that you need to get to a, you need to get your daughter to a dry climate. Of course back then, you know, penicillin didn't become the norm until after nineteen forty five, until after the war ended. So this is before antibiotics, when the only thing you could do is go to a dry climate. And their family was very uh, financially strapped because of the depression. But her grandfather was a well-to-do dairy farmer outside of Milwaukee. And he said, I will pay for her to go to boarding school in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to that dry climate. So she was sent to boarding school when she was 10. And, and the ranch, of course, was Bishop's Lodge. And it was a girls' boarding school in the wintertime and a guest ranch in the summertime. And she went there all the way through eighth grade and became very healthy and active. And they said, well, you've 
really regained your health, so come back to Milwaukee. And she went back to Milwaukee for her freshman year in high school and was so ill that she, with pneumonia that she was in the hospital. She had to have a blood transfusion from her father. And they said, when they figured, you know, when she lived, they said, you're going back to Santa Fe. So she went to Santa Fe and graduated and went to secretarial school, went back to Milwaukee to secretarial school, back to Santa Fe. The name of the school was called Brown Moore and it, because it was owned and run by Miss Brown and Miss Moore. And she went to work as a secretary for Miss Brown and Miss Moore and started dating my father who was managing the guest ranch and Miss Brown and Miss Moore didn't like that so they fired her. And, and so she got a job working in Santa Fe until she and my dad got married in Bishop Lamey's Chapel there on the premises of Bishop's Lodge. And then that was October, and they went to Acapulco for a month for their honeymoon. And they did not go back to Santa Fe because they had been hired to come out and manage Ramuda Ranch. And my father had been there before, and my mom just came as well. And it wasn't long after that, I don't know time-wise, when um, Jack Burden was very ill, I think with rheumatic fever, and died. And that's when Sophie Burden asked my father if he and my mother would come out and just be here year-round permanently to run Ramuda Ranch. So that's kind of their story. Any other background about your parents that comes to mind? No, they just, neither one went to college, so it was very important to them for Rusty and me to go to college. They were really adamant about that. So that's why we went to boarding school and then to college. But I don't know about any other background. You know, they were self-made people, so they got real on-the-job training. <laughs> and did very well. Yeah, they did. They were extremely hardworking, you know, um, and as you know, hands-on. People now are not hands-on, you know. If the pump breaks, they call somebody to come fix it. <laughs> People were just more hands-on in general, way back when, about fixing right. their own cars, you know, that kind of thing. So Dad managed Ramuda for Sophie um, through 1947. And then there were, of course, two guests at Ramuda, um, Charles McGuire, we called him Squire, Squire McGuire, and Boff Howard, who wanted to be in the guest ranch business. And they knew my father wanted his own place, and so they said, do it and we'll back you. So that was the three men that started Rancho de los Caballeros. And how did they find this property? Were they looking at that point for a place? They were already familiar with this property because they used to have luncheon cookouts over here on this property, they would ride all the way across the Hacienda River and across town. And instead of having a cookout, they would bring box lunches for the guests. And they would just sit here and have a great ride in gorgeous desert. And they said, when this becomes available, we want it. And I don't know the exact nuts and bolts of how they went about acquiring the property. But once they did, it wasn't going to be worth anything to them unless they could find a source of water. So that was the next order of operations, was to drill a well and uh, find water. And was your mother on board with 
your dad's dream? Completely. Completely. Yep. And did she was she active in the operation in the beginning? Or was that did that come? Uh yes, yeah, she was. And in fact once the ranch was built over the course of nineteen forty seven. Um and Rusty was born in forty seven. He ended up celebrating his first birthday at Ramuda, actually. And this place opened December of 1948, right before Christmas. Mother did all the books. Yeah, she kept all the books. She decorated the rooms. You know, the cheap way to decorate back then was Navajo rugs. And the ranch had um, radiant floor heating, hot water radiant floor heating in every room, so it didn't need carpets. So the great way to decorate was Navajo rugs. Do you remember the guests at that time, back when you were younger, of the guests coming in? and? Yes, because so many of them had children my age. And one of the cool things about the ranch is that um, until it was sold, uh, it had a children's program for which there was no charge. And the children's counselors took the kids for breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning and morning activities, riding, swimming, all of the above, through lunch and then went back to their parents at 1.30 and then they took them again at 6 until 5.30 or 6 until 8.30 or 9. I think those change, those times changed through the years. But children were not only not to be heard they really weren't to be seen. They weren't to be in the bar during cocktail hour. Parents were supposed to be able to enjoy their dinners without their kids. And the kids had a way better time <laughs> being with the other kids. So that's how that all worked out. And did you get to play with the kids? Did uh-huh. I was in the and... kids program. The thing is, the kids program was from ages, only children ages 5 through 12. And if you had a babysitter, then your babysitter could take you and and join the kids program, which is what happened. And I think that probably happened for me and probably Rusty as well when we were little. Um, or a sitter would stay with us if if mom didn't, I think. But um, any, anybody under five had to have a sitter. And did you do the activities with the kids? And what were some of those activities back then that they had? Well, certainly riding was a big one. And, of course, swimming, hiking around. Depending on the counselor, it depended how creative they were. And then there was a children's playroom uh, where there were tons of books and games and, and lots of crafts and stuff to do. So, yeah, we did all that. Um, I don't... I think we spent more time in the playroom in the evening when it was dark, but even still, we played wonderful games of, of um, you know, Red Rover and Capture the Flag and Sardines <laughs> that were all great games. So, And then a, a lot of us all grew up seeing each other once a year. Guests primarily came from the Midwest, although they came from all over, but they're, the biggest section of them came from the Midwest. And... We would see them once a year, either at Christmas, there was the Christmas group, and then there was the spring vacation group of families that returned every year at the same time. And did you stay in touch with any of those, even into mm-hmm, your mm-hmm. adulthood? And in fact, 
let's say I'm 71, tomorrow a member of the Leander family arrives who is from the Chicago area and they're coming with their children and grandchildren uh, for four days or so and we've been in touch for 60 years. So, yeah. And so your parents operated this ranch on their own for the most part. What do you think were their greatest challenges in those early years? I think certainly advertising. Because back then, when you traveled anywhere, you did it through a travel agent. So there were brochures with pictures and the rates and those were sent to travel agents all over the country. I remember in the summers lining up all of the new brochures for the year and the envelopes on the pool table when we were closed and having to stuff them all in envelopes and so that they could all get get sent out. Yeah, yeah. The ranch's first advertising agent was a man named Ernie Cabot, and spelled C-A-B-O-T, and he was in, located in Tucson. If you look at the letterheads, you'll find that they're slightly different than they are now. A very stylized Spanish horse with a narrow neck. And he was a wonderful artist, and he even has children's books to his name that he wrote. But he was the early one, so you find his artwork. And a lot of it was artwork rather than photographs. Photographs were too expensive. I do remember in the photographs, and the reason we have palm trees around is because my dad said, people have to be able to see a palm tree in the picture, so they'll think it's warm. Yeah, I think getting the word out would have been the biggest challenge. They planted palm trees, and what other type of foliage did they plant? Not much. Everything else was desert. They were very frugal, and especially when it came to water. And the water in the pool drained down to a seven-acre irrigated pasture where foaling mares and sick cows were kept. So water was used more than once. It was also used to water all of those oleanders that are around the ten the top tennis courts because you didn't chlorinate a pool back then. You The only way you cleaned it was to empty it and it was 10 feet deep. So uh, the water would go down and water the pasture. If there were leaves floating on it, they would add water to the pool. The leaves would float out through the overflow holes, and that water was used to water the oleanders around the tennis court. And then I don't know when it was. Rusty would know better what year it actually was when uh, the health department was mandating that pools be chlorinated. And when that happened, then we started heating the pool because you don't empty the pool out all the time. When the wells were drilled, the water came out of the ground at a constant 78 degrees and a year in summer and winter. And my dad was real happy about that because he knew he would not have to heat the pool. Once we started chlorinating the pool, then we had to start heating it. There were eight guest rooms that were attached to the main building that were all rooms with private baths and every two connected. And they didn't have private uh, patios like the bungalows did. 
which is what we call them. They call them casitas now, but we call them uh, bungalows. And I, I don't want to say motel, but it's, you know, they were just a, a single story wing. We had to take all those out except for the rooms that are now 101 and 102. So all the rooms after that were taken out, and then we built those four rooms of suites. That's, and they had to take eucalyptus trees down to build the suites. So they had to have been planted as time went on, I guess. And as you got older, did you begin working at the ranch? I did not work at the ranch until after my father died. And he died when I was a sophomore in high school. And I think the following season, they needed a children's counselor. So I was a children's counselor. And I did. I used to help out at the children's counselor. I didn't do what Rusty did because he was in, you know, located so close by in Tempe. Well, I was in New York, so I couldn't come home on weekends and help. But I, I worked as children's counselor, I think, the most on on vacations. At the time when Rusty and I were growing up, not many students from the Wickenburg High School went to college. Neither of my parents had been able to go to college. I think my father went maybe went one year, um, but it was during the Depression, and he needed to get a job and make money. So they really wanted Rusty and me to go to college. And... Uh, the theory was Rusty would go east to high school and west to college, and I would do just the opposite. They figured we wouldn't go to college if we went to high school in Wickenburg. So we both got sent to boarding school. And he went to Connecticut, and I got to go to Cushy, California. <laughs> and then I went to uh, upstate New York for college, and of course he came out here to ASU. And what did you study in college? Uh, I double majored in mathematics and music, and I was a. Comp- I did it with the intention of becoming a computer programmer, which is what I did for ten years. And then I got a job fairly quickly thereafter, because I was taking a class. I was taking a physics class at ASU, and there was an opening down there in their computer center. And I hadn't really taken any programming classes. I, I programmed. I wrote programs for calculus class in college and we used the IBM 360 machine that was at Cornell um, which was the college that was kind of nearby and then so when did you come back to the ranch after your college years no I never came back I worked down at ASU and then I moved to Boston um, just because I needed a change and a boy that I had met in college lived there. We had kept in touch the whole time. And I wasn't there very long, maybe six months, and he asked me to marry him. So we were living, we came, we got married here at the ranch, or in town and then reception here at the ranch. But I think that that was probably destined to be. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was a downhill ski racer. And we didn't want to raise children in Boston at the time during the 80s was not a good scene. It was great if you were a couple or a single person. Boston's really fun. But um, we wanted to raise children in the West. And I said, okay, let's not translate West to mean Arizona because that's where I'm from. I said, we should, you know, you should move somewhere where you can ski because uh, I didn't ski. So 
Colorado, Wyoming, you know, someplace where you could ski. And his company ended up sending us to Phoenix. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. And he had been to graduate school out here. He went to Thunderbird um, International School of Management and got his degree there. And he spoke Japanese and um, did a lot of that stuff. So, and he loved it out here when he was here. So he was perfectly happy to move to Phoenix. Then did you come visit the ranch periodically? Mm -hmm. All the time, yeah. Our first child was born in Boston and we moved to Phoenix when he was six weeks old. So I probably, we probably came up once a month or more, you know, so my mom could see him. Did you notice changes every time you would come back? Were there changes that you noticed? No, they weren't that frequent. Um, But for instance, when the last iteration of the remodel of the bar was done that was done that year because we got our first video camera that year in 84 and that would have been 84 or the summer of 85 yeah the summer of 85 probably and I came up and I have a video of that bar being built so I would have seen that and then I would have seen new guest rooms but they didn't have changes didn't happen frequently and that was As it should be, my father didn't do anything, nor did my mother or my brother, really, until you had the money to do it. You didn't borrow money to do things like that. I do think that Rusty borrowed a substantial amount of money, and I don't remember how much it was, but it was close to a million dollars, to build the Maricopa Suites. And they were done when the ranch opened, and they had paid for themselves by the end of December. So that's how things were done back then. So tell me about some of the architecture, especially in the main lobby. Okay. The ranch was designed by an architect named Jim Gaw Meem from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he designed it. The bricks, not bricks, but the block, the cement block, that the ranch is constructed with were all poured, each block was poured on site. So that was cool. And then it designed in it was the, the new in thing of having, I don't know if it was in yet, but it was nouveau, uh, was the radiant floor heating that was done throughout the, the, all of the main buildings. And there's three miles of pipe underneath the ground that took the hot water to all of the bungalows as well to heat those floors. I don't know if there's any other thing I can say about the architecture. Yeah, the ceiling in the card room. Oh, that? the old card room? Where the um, gift, gift shop, shop is yes. now. Um, split Aspen. And that is still the same in the lobby where you check in. It was in the bar that was next to the dining room. And we did two, two or three remodels of the bar. And every single time we did it, we took the ceiling down, we dismantled it, and then put it back up. So that's split aspen. The big, huge hood over the fireplace was made at a place called Wickenburg Mine Supply, which was an assay office for prospectors in town. And you now know it as Jimmy's Hat Shop that has that... The door on the diagonal. Right, right. That's where that, that was Wickenburg Mine Supply. And it was made there locally. I know. It's kind of a big 
piece that you wonder about that. It is. Yeah. And then uh, an interior designer named Bruce Cooper in Santa Fe carved all of the woodwork and painted it by hand. He was very expensive. So when the ranch was built, um, my parents really couldn't afford him, but he designed every all the furniture for all the guest rooms, and they took it down to Tempe and had it made at a wood shop there. And then later on, as they could afford it, Bruce did all the work himself, which is really the stuff that's there now that they're unfortunately taking down. They took out, uh, took out all the stuff in the in the dining room, which really surprised me. So we'll see what happens to the stuff that's in the living room now. So all that woodwork that was underneath the windows in the mm-hmm. dining room, that's what he did? Is mm-hmm. That- mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, the, it was the balances and the, and the bottoms. I don't know where everybody's going to put their hats now. You know, that's where you put your cowboy hat. <laughs> and some of that furniture, is that some of the original that's in the lodge now? I, I don't know. I think that on either side of the fireplace, there are two wedge-shaped tables that are topped with a thick slab of flagstone. And I think that those might be... I don't know how much of any of the furniture in there is little. You know, it gets such heavy use. Now, the two original couches that were, you know, perpendicular to the fireplace, mm-hmm. I'm sitting on one. And when you look at it, you'll notice that the sides and the back are all done in copper, which are very much like the bookcases that were in that library where you were talking about the ceiling. You know, those are all done in copper. Rusty has the other one, the other couch. Tell me about the library. Every place had one. You know, if you go to all the places, uh, for instance, the Arizona Inn down in Tucson, they still have theirs, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful room. Have you ever been there? Oh, go. If you get a chance to go, it's a great place. I think Bermuda probably had one. I don't know whether Flying E has one or not. But anyway, every place you went, they had a library with some card tables, and there was a big, huge lectern on top of a table that had a one of those big old dictionaries that was about four or five inches thick on it. And, of course, a big, huge book of Emily Post's etiquette <laughs> was in there, as well as all of the other books. And I don't know where any original books came from. I would be willing to bet that they were left by guests. When my husband and I moved into this house... I was going through all of the books that were in those shelves there that were my mom's. And there were probably about 200 of them. And probably about 30 of them were all autographed by the authors because they had been guests at the ranch. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I, th- I, t- I took almost all of them down there except one. Um, and I think guests bring a book and if they want it, they'll just... Leave it. Do you remember any famous guests? Oh, of course. And it also depends on your definition of famous. And I should preface this by saying, my father made significant changes with things here that were different from Bermuda. He wanted people to have their own tables and not serve meals family style. He did not want guests drinking in their rooms. He wanted people to come here to get to know the other people. 
And to do that, they brought their own liquor, and then we provided the bar with lockers for their liquor, and the mixers, and the bartender. And people were told that, you know, you go to the bar and you have a drink before you go to dinner, and then you go in to dinner. And he wanted corporate people. So he didn't want what he called the Hollywood crowd. So ordinarily, when you ask a question about famous people, you know, that's what immediately comes to mind. And and there have been a share of them here. And one of them was when I was a teenager, was an actress by the name of Ann Baxter. And she would come with her husband and children at Christmas. She came two or three years in a row and was absolutely delightful. But I was, you know, 12 or 13 or 14. I wasn't paying any attention. And I remember my mother coming home one night and saying, I finally got the nerve to ask Ann Baxter what she did for her skin. She said, Edie, I use soap and water twice a day. If you're going to wrinkle, it's in your jeans. <laughs> so things like that. But for me, um, the famous people that I would consider famous is I was a Girl Scout, a cadet Girl Scout, when the 50th anniversary of the Girl Scouts was held and the Jubilee was held in Phoenix. Juliet Lowe, who was the founder of the Girl Scouts, had died. So Lady Baden-Powell came from England to do the give the address. She had started the Girl Guides in England. Her husband, of course, started the Boy Scouts in England and then before it came here. And when she was going to go to Phoenix to make the speech, the nice place for her to stay was here, which she did. So I got to have dinner with her, and that, and that was very cool. I loved that. Neil Armstrong, you know, was here. There are more than a handful. If I had to write them down, I'd... Oh, and when we were kids, Hopalong Cassidy. Did Rusty tell you about that? Tell me about it. Well, the thing that my mother said, Rusty was little, and I have a picture of me... Uh, with Hopalong Cassidy, and I'm really little. I mean, I had to have been barely two. I was wondering why Rusty was not in the picture, and I'm thinking it's probably because he was at school, um, and I would not have been at school. But apparently, Rusty got some other boys over together, and they went over to Hopalong Cassidy's room. This is William Boyd and knocked on the door, and the manager answered the door and said, you know, we want to see Hopalong Cassidy. And the manager said, well, he's resting now, and you'll see him later at dinner. And Rusty looked in the room, and he was sitting there with his wife, and he said, oh, come on, kids, he's got a woman in there. <laughs> so that was, that was Hopalong Cassidy's story. Is there a picture of him in the photo albums, do you know? I don't know. I would have to look. Be 1953, I think, 52, 53. And I haven't looked at those albums yet. Did your parents start those albums from the beginning, or did that come later? No, because, well, I think the first one that's there is 1950. So that would have been two years later. There were always, um, there was always a photographer here, a professional photographer, to take pictures of guests doing things, whether it being on rides or, you know, at the putting green or Christmas or whatever. And those were to be sold. So they used to display them on a rack 
that was by that big mosaic tile that was done for Squire McGuire. And whatever photographs the guests did not purchase went into those albums. So those were kind of all the leftovers. And then, of course, when people started having cell phones and taking their own pictures, Mm -hmm. there was never a need for a photographer anymore. So that's why they end. Tell me about the fashion shows. You know where Anita's is now? Okay, well, the door that you walk into Anita's was my grandmother's shop. And the room on the right, which would be to the south, was a shop, a separate shop called Calico Corners, which was um, fabric and notions. And the room that is the bar at Anita's was a separate shop, and that was Thurber's Western Wear. And um, Sky Thurber, I don't, I've forgotten his wife's name, managed that for years, owned it for years, and they sold wonderful Western Wear. And as you know from looking at the pictures, we used to have fashion shows at all the different ranches. And they were part of the people that supplied clothes to be shown at the fashion show. And everything that I modeled for them as a child, they gave me. Out by the pool? Yeah, they were around the pool and they were at different ranches. So we would have them here, they'd be at Monte Vista or Ramuda or, you know, all the ranches did everything together. And it was great. I got lots of bathing suits and boots and (laughs) shirts and all sorts of good clothes. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of things that we did because people stayed so long when they came out. And fashion shows, you know, were part of that. Tell me about the Cattlemen's Ball. Oh, Cattle Wrestlers Ball. When people came here, they would come for um, long periods of time, weeks or sometimes months, which people don't do now. You know, people would come at Christmas and they would come right before Christmas, and they wouldn't leave till after New Year's. And you know, you've been here long enough to know that a group comes at Christmas and they leave now, and then a group comes at New Year's and they leave. It's it's totally different. But particularly in the spring, guests might come out for months, and they would bring their children, and their children would have um, their homework from their wherever they were from. And we would drive them over to the one-room school at Ramuda in the morning, and they'd go from 9 to 12. And then they'd come home back to the ranch and, you know, do whatever, swim, ride, have a good time. And many of them, I think, got their springtime education out here, really. And because guests came for so long, we had to have lots of different activities for them. The Cattle Wrestlers Ball was one of them. And a costume company in Phoenix would bring costumes up in a semi. And I don't think it was a big semi, but it was a big truck. And on the back of it would be a big trailer full of hanging costumes. And guests would go in to the back of the trailer and choose the costume they want. And that would be the costume that they would wear. And the Cattle Rustlers Ball was held in different places. I've seen a bunch of the pictures in the albums when it was held here. It was also held at Bowman's Barn. Everett Bowman was a rodeo champion, and uh, for, he was from Wickenburg. And, and so there, we have Bowman's Barn for him. Big, big, huge place to have a dance. But that's what that was for. And then, of course, there was Gold Rush Days. And the Cattle Rustlers Ball was always kind of right before Gold Rush Days. And at Gold Rush Days, all of us who lived here and in town 
would dress up for Gold Rush Days. In um, Gold Rush, you know, uh, 18, middle of 1800s dresses and stuff like that. And my classmates would, and that's how we'd all go to town. We, everybody in town, you looked like you came back to 1860s if you drove into town. But then there was, they had a putting tournament because what they call the event lawn now was the putting green um, until we built the golf course. And yeah. whose decision was that to build the golf course? Well, it was my dad's dream. So it was up to Mother and Rusty to finish the development, which kind of started in 1968, 69, that year when the lots finally got all the utilities put in. And then the original residents of the South Mesa, of the homes there, and the homes here in this first phase one were the ones that got together and put up the money and got the golf course going. I don't know the nuts and bolts of the accounting, what what percentage of money the ranch would have put in, and uh, but I'm sure they found the person who designed it, which was Greg Greg Nash, Harden, Harden and Nash. So when the members build the course, the members own the course. So the ranch did not own the golf course, the members did, until it was sold and the new buyers bought the course at the same time. Did your dad get to enjoy it? No, because he died. He died before these lots were even done. So he never did. They, He and my mom, I think, learned to play golf over at the Wickenburg Country Club. And that's where all the guests that came here played, was over at the country club. How difficult was it for your mother to carry on the operations of the ranch after your dad passed? Well, difficult, obviously, when your spouse of 25 years dies. But my dad had a good crew in place. And she said more than once that she relied so heavy, heavily on that. You know, the people that were here knew what they were doing and didn't have to be trained, and that was worth everything. And I, I didn't get to see it. You know, I came home when my dad died, and um, a week later I was back at boarding school. And what year was that? Uh, 1967. And in fact, my school had a four-day weekend at the end of February, and I came home with my roommate and my best friend. So there were three of us, and we were home, and the first day my roommate fell off one of our horses and hurt herself really badly, so she was in the hospital. And so my other friend, Mary, and I just kind of did what we could do, going to see Chris in the hospital, but Saturday night was the Cattle Rustlers Ball. And at the same time there was a Cattle Rustlers Ball, there was also a Calf Rustlers Ball that the little kids got to do the same thing with the children's counselor and the costumes and all that stuff. But I was, Mary and I were 15, and we went in the trailer and rented our little cute little dance hall girl outfits. And really, it was the first time I ever got to go to a cattle rustler's ball. And my father had rented a Confederate uniform, because he was from Oklahoma, and a wonderful guest, longtime guest named Dan Pickrell from, I think from uh, San Francisco. I think he was a geologist from San Francisco. Rented a Union uniform, and he and my father had a choreographed shootout in the middle of Bowman's barn. And that was great. And after that was over, 
Mary and I were trundled away because we were not old enough to drink. So we couldn't be there for that. <laughs> and then the next morning was Sunday, and my father was already up being, you know, a guest ranch owner. He shot three rounds of skeet with guests because he was would teach people to shoot skeet and played two rounds of golf and Mary and I had to go back to school so I never I didn't see him so the next day I'm at school when I got the phone call that he had collapsed from a stroke and and to come home so I came home the next day but I didn't see him so the last time I ever saw him was in this choreographed shootout at Bowman's Barn which is really cool I mean that's a neat memory yeah. to have and my roommate, Chris, was still in the hospital <laughs> across from the hall from my dad. So she was here for a while. So um, ranch was still open, operations still going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, really, um, the season would really start at the beginning of February, where you had to make reservations pretty much a year in advance if you wanted to come here. And then your mom just hit the ground running with operations? She hit the ground running. She didn't get a chance to slow down until the ranch closed in May that year. Yeah. Was she friends with Vi Willick? Oh, very good friends with Vi Willick and Sophie Burden. And her best friend was a woman by the name of Verna Bylan. And Verna and Carl Bylan owned Monte Vista. And my eighth grade teacher, Don Kerr, owned Slash Barquet. All of these were guest ranches in the area. Was it unusual for a woman to be running an operation at that time? Yeah. But essentially Vi Wellick ran Flying E. I don't think George had that much to do with it. Yeah, I think Flying E was her, her baby. Um, and then Sophie, of course, Burden owned Ramuda with my dad managing it. But even owning it, you're, you're still in there. You're hardworking and in the game. How has the guest experience changed over the years? As I mentioned before, people um, came for longer periods of time, and now guests will come. They will stay for a shorter amount of time, and there are so many more places to go. So they really want to broaden their experiences of experiencing, you know, the tropics or the desert or all sorts of different places. One of the things about the ranch that people tended to like was that they could depend on not having such a different experience. They found that they liked what the ranch had to offer and they liked it for their children especially and they knew that they could come here. I will tell you that one of the two two biggest compliments that I've had, one of them was for people who came back year after year after year, particularly from the sh- different uh, cities in the Chicago area, they all got to know each other. And they would get together in the summertime uh, in Chicago and have lost cab parties. And I thought that was the biggest compliment ever. And then we had a family that used to come from London, England, and bring their grandchildren later on. Rodney was a great uh, Desert Caballeros writer. And all of these rooms where 135 is, that kind of, it's kind of almost in a compound down there. They would stay in all those rooms, all five kids, their kids, everything. 
and they would be sitting around on the lawn just with each other talking and having a good time. And I remember, I think it was Polly and Nick, Nick kind of said, well, where's Evie, who was their 13-year-old daughter? And Polly said, hmm? I don't know, she's around somewhere, she'll turn up. And it occurred to her immediately to say, there is nowhere else in the world where I could say that. Where it didn't really make any difference where my 13-year-old daughter was. That this place was safe enough to say that. And I thought that that was pretty remarkable because that's always the way it was. So your family owned the ranch for 74 seasons. What do you feel the legacy is? The legacy is that my parents did something that they really wanted to do and worked hard for it and not only made it succeed, but it became valuable to the town of Wickenburg. It became a part of this town. All of these ranches, no matter how far they were out of town, because now the town's expanded, but we used to be considered being out, way out of town, were part of the community. And I would love to see that continue. I think that there is a tendency now for it to be impersonal, to just come to a resort, and that that resort isn't part of the community of Wickenburg. And I'm hoping that that won't happen. I want people to still come here to get to know the other people and enjoy what the ranch has to offer. What do you think are some of the greatest lessons that you learned from your parents? To appreciate what I had. I have a little story connected with that. When the ranch was built, Rusty and I had to eat with the children's counselor, even if there were no other children here. Because my parents ate dinner every night with the staff and a table in the dining room. And when we built the West Dining Room, which included two alcoves, one of which is still there, the other one which then became that busing area. Okay, but that was a twin to it, or a mirror image to it. And my parents had their own table. And the one thing that my father really wanted was not to be disturbed at dinner. Because we grew up in that house across from the pool, we lived in a fishbowl. It was, it's a 24-7 business. It's one of the reasons why my brother moved off the property. Um, and the only time he had to be with my mother was in the dining room. And one night I was there. I think Rusty was probably away at boarding school. So I was probably, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 or something. And whoever was at the desk, at the, at the check-in desk, came in and whispered something in my father's ear. My father got up and walked out of the dining room and then walked back into the dining room with two policemen. And my mother is really wondering what's going on. And he walked into the kitchen with two policemen and came back out by himself and the policemen left. And, you know, having two policemen walk through the dining room when you're full of guests is not something that is to be preferred. And my mother, of course, when my father sat down, is in a total flap and says, what's going on? And he said, well, there was a little boy in Chandler who was in the hospital who was dying. And they asked him if he would like anything special. And he asked, he said, I would love to have some cantaloupe. And no place had it. He couldn't get it from Casa Grande. None of the places in Phoenix had it. Only resorts could get fruit out of season. 
and they sent two policemen up from Chandler to get it for this little guy. And my dad just looked and he said, you just need to appreciate what you have. And I think that's the biggest lesson, that I am so lucky to have grown up here and experienced this life. Thank you, Susie, for sitting down with me and sharing your stories and the rich history of the ranch. This concludes another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and please share the podcast with your friends and family. And if you're feeling really generous, give us a review and rating. The Souvenirs Podcast is produced by Susie Miner. Background music written and performed by Dick Fredrickson. Thanks for tuning in. Till next time.